All right, let's go Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, we'll have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. We also have some physical Bibles scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats there. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, we would invite you to take one of those physical ones home. The reasons for that super simple. I say it every week, but I say it on every week so that you finally like clicks with people. Like we like truthfully believe that God uses His Word for all kinds of super important things, but chief among those things is that He uses it to reveal Himself to His people. And so we unapologetically declare that the mission of this church is to help people know God. Like that's that's what we want to be about. And so if if the Bible's the way that he the main tool that he uses in that process, then it's it's kind of smart for you to be reading the Bible, right? Like that's that's what we want to push you to. And so if you don't have a Bible outside of this place, take that one home and start reading it. And uh, I will absolutely call that a win. Romans chapter six. Um, so we are a few months now into a series that we've been working on through the uh, the book of Romans. Uh, if you, you know, subtract all the time off that we took over the summer for a little summer series when we shut stuff down, uh, if you just start counting the weeks that we've been looking at the book of Romans lately, um, we're, this is like week 13 for us. Right? And so we've been in this for a little while now. Um, if you're new here this morning though, uh, it's probably important to know that Paul's letter to the church at Rome uh, was birthed out of a need for him to request help help of that church to help him take the gospel onto Spain, right? Uh, in chapter 15 of Romans, he tells them explicitly that, that his hope is that they will help him get to Spain because he believes that God has called him to take the gospel where the gospel isn't yet. And Spain is, in that part of the time is definitely one of those places. And so Paul wants their help. And by this point in history, though, by this point in the timeline of events in the New Testament, Paul has never been to Rome. Like, he's eventually going to go there. He's going to spend a lot of time there. Uh, we, we think he was arrested twice. The first time he spends under house arrest there for a couple of years. And then he gets out and he goes off and does some other stuff. And then he gets arrested again. And we think that's where he's ultimately martyred. All right? And so Paul eventually spends a lot of time in the city of Rome. But by this point, he doesn't have any connection there. He's never been to Rome. Uh, we don't even know who planted, started the church in Rome. Our best guess all right, is that some Jewish person traveled to somewhere like Jerusalem or Antioch or Ephesus, somewhere where the gospel was being proclaimed powerfully. Uh, Jerusalem's probably the best contender because a Jewish person would travel to Jerusalem multiple times a year, right? And so uh, we, our best guess is that a Jewish person went to one of these places that the gospel was being proclaimed, being preached, that a church was started. They heard the gospel, received Jesus, and then went back home and got all their friends together and started a church. And if you're wondering, if, is it really that simple? The answer is a lot of times, yeah. It really is that simple. Like church folk, we kind of make things complicated too often. right? Starting a church was really just about that. And, and all this stuff had been going on and, and things had been going very well here. And Paul's been hearing these stories. This church is growing. God's using it. But Paul's got no connection there. But he wants to get to Spain. He wants their help. And so he writes them this letter both to encourage them and to ask them for help in his missionary need. To help them see the, the, the missionary need that's in front of their face. But Romans, I've been saying all along, is just an absolute gem. It is a complete masterpiece of first century writing. Um, to put it short, Romans is a logical argument from beginning to end for the global need of the gospel and why God is raising up not only Paul but others to take that gospel to the nations. It's a logical argument from beginning to end. A leads to B, which therefore causes C, which necessitates D, and so on and so forth. That's Romans in a nutshell. And those of you who have been here, you might remember that at the very beginning of our series, uh, several months back, I said that there was this outside influence. There was this one outside influence that really bore weight 
on the letter to the Romans. And it was this conflict in the church between Jewish culture, ethnically Jewish uh, Christians, and ethnically Gentile Christians. Do you remember that? We, st- we talked about it back in April. I'm sure all of you remember that, right? You know, we said back in April that the history of this church at Rome was a little bit complicated. Right? In uh, 49 A.D., Right? There was a thing that happened that, that caused some change. Uh, most of the churches in the, the first century kind of had the same kind of trajectory. It started out with Jews, and then all of a sudden, some Gentiles started uh, coming to Jesus, and they're not really sure what to do with them. Uh, but more and more Gentiles kept coming, and, and especially in these bigger cities where Jews were actually a minority in those cities, right? And so uh, most of these churches started out with Jews uh, making up the core of the church, and when you have one group of people making up a core of the church, and all these other cultures are beginning to trickle in, that core group usually is the, the leadership of the church, right? And so that's kind of the structure and the, the reality of the church at Rome too, right? And there's this, there's, there's this Jewish core that's kind of in leadership and, and, this, and leadership matters. It defines the kind of the style of the church and the, the, the method of the church and, and just the cultural feel of the church. The, everything just kind of felt Jewish, which is okay. But then in 49 AD, an insurrection happened in the city of Rome among a Jewish sect and it well, it caused some problems, and Emperor Claudius decided, you know what, just get out of here. And so he kicked all the Jews out of the city of Rome. So, overnight, you've got a very culturally Jewish church. All the leadership is kind of out of this one group of people. And yeah, you've got all these other cultures interspersed, intermixed in there, but it's just kind of this one homogenous thing. And then overnight, all the leadership goes away. They're made to leave the city. And so this, this church begins to take on a different feel, doesn't it? Right? If all you're left with are the Gentiles, well, well, things begin to shift. They begin to change. And neither of those cultures are better or worse. It's just different. Leadership matters, right? It begins to take on this different flavor, this different feel of a different culture. And, well... Then Emperor Claudius dies. And in the world of dictatorships, that means all of his laws end. And so all the Jews, the Roman Jews, begin trickling back into the city, right? All the Jewish Christians begin to trickle back into the church. What do you think they found when they got there? You think it caused any conflict? Does that ever happen in churches? No, that can't happen in churches. Yeah, and so this thing that had a different feel had leaders leave and now they're coming back. And so what do you do? And Paul, in this absolute masterpiece, absolute masterpiece, argument for the global need of the gospel. He, he's working towards a very specific end. Even though, he, but even though he's got this one end in mind, he's got this also this other satellite thing that he's got to address. He's been going to begin to weave in how the gospel applies to this weird conflict of two cultures in one space. Christ is building one church. Or we say one gospel skyscraper, right? 
So where are we in the argument? Well, last week we closed out chapter 5. You, you, how many of y'all were here for that, right? Chapter 5 is where we closed out last week. Um, in chapter 5, at the end of chapter 5, Paul is explaining the difference between Team Adam and Team Jesus. All right? Team Adam and Team Jesus. He argues that by birth, by default, all of us, you, me, the lady next door that you don't talk to, all of us by default are a part of Team Adam. He's our representative. Our federal head is the theological word that we used last week, right? That, that, Jesus, uh, that Adam, by default, is our representative. The problem, though, is that Adam failed. Like, epically failed. It, it went really bad, really fast. The vice regent, the one who was given dominion over the rest of creation, the, the responsibility to lead the rest of creation in worshipful response to their creator. That guy, the first man named man, he's given an explicit command to not eat the fruit from the tree in the midst of the garden, right? If you eat it, you will surely die. Adam let us down, man. Like You don't even get another full chapter in after that command is given and it's over that fast. He failed. And in chapter 5, verse 12, Paul says that sin entered the world through one man and death entered with it. Because Adam is our representative, we inherit his sin and yes, even the consequences of his sin. And so even on our best day, with our best effort, we still fall short of God's glory. That's Paul's argument so far. That no matter how hard we fight against it, to quote Paul, Death reigns. Death reigns. Try as hard as you might. Try as hard as you like. You can kick. You can fight. You can bite. You can scream. It doesn't matter. You may prolong it with a healthy diet, but no one escapes it. Death reigns. It reigns. But thanks be to God, because there is also a better representative to stand in our place. Right? And that those who belong by grace through faith to Jesus have made the jump from Team Adam to Team Jesus. We now have a better, better federal head, he argued. But last week, we closed our time by taking a weird turn. Those of you here, do you remember that? Like, like we could have shut things down at the end of verse 19, if you have that open. Uh, those of you who have a physical Bible can see that. All right? In chapter 5, verse 19, like, like the gospel's kind of presented there in, chapter, in verse 19. And we could have just kind of shut it down and walked away going, all right, everybody bow your head and close your eyes. Repeat after me. It could have been this nice, clean break. But then verse 20 happens. And Paul decides to bring up the law again, right? That's weird. It's kind of a weird left turn that doesn't seem necessary. Why would he bring that up? Well, we've been saying all along that for a while now, at least, that the law, the law of Moses was given to illuminate the rebellion that already existed in our hearts towards God. That's, that's the, what the law was for, that, that sin exists in our hearts by nature, but that the law was given to reveal it as sin. And that seems weird and complicated, uh, but like, like we've also talked about how the law, knowing the law, elevates our sin from just like an internal rebellion to an outright trespass. That, that it actually raises the level of our sin that what was once only an attitude, a faulty attitude toward God, now turns into willing defiance against Him. And so sin becomes more heinous, is what he's talking about at the end of chapter 5 there. 
Justin, I know what you said, but I don't care. Thumbing of our nose at the good, wise Creator King. And so Paul asked the question last week, like, wouldn't it have been better if the law had never been given? Like, that's his question. If knowing the law amplifies sin, like, wouldn't God receive more glory if He had never allowed sin to abound in the first place? Like, why would He give the law? If, sin makes the, if the law makes sin worse, like, why give the law? And Paul answers this question at the end of verse 20, right? We talked about this last week. Uh, the answer that Paul gives is that God gets more glory by letting sin abound because it also creates the opportunity for the far bigger reality of God's grace to be manifested towards sinners. That's his argument at, verse, at the end of verse 20. Yes, sin abounds, but grace, have you seen grace? It abounds all the more, he says. That's what he's, that's what he's arguing. That, yeah, sin leads to death, but man, oh man, the righteousness of Christ leads to eternal life. Let's celebrate the life. His argument is that Jesus didn't simply die for sin. He died for a whole pile of sin. Isn't he amazing? And that's where we left off last week. God gave the law as a temporary taskmaster to increase the heinousness of our sin and thereby increase the opportunity to show off His incredible grace through the gifted righteousness and sacrificial death of Jesus. That's a weird place to leave off. We left it there last week, but that's a weird place to leave it. Because, if you're like me, maybe you're not like me, I'm weird like this, that immediately raises two questions in me. Does it raise two questions for you? Maybe you don't even know what the questions are. The first question is this. What does any of this have to do with the conflict between Jewish and Gentile culture Christians? Like we just spent a bunch of time a few minutes ago like setting all that up. Like, did we just change the subject? Nope. See, a lot of the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles mainly revolved around what parts of the cultural laws they still were required to follow, right? We've talked about that in here before. In other words, like, should the Gentiles coming to know Jesus practice certain dietary rules? Are they allowed to eat this? Are they allowed to eat that? Should they practice certain ceremonial washing rules? Should they wash their hands this way and that way at certain times? Or are we done with that? Should they practice circumcision as a sign of being members of God's covenant people? You've got one group with a millennia-long history of trying to be the rule followers, even though they always failed, right? trying their best to be the rule followers because they also had the very clear expectation that willingly rejecting those rules got them kicked out of the camp. Right? you got one group that has a millennia-long tradition of being the rule followers, and then you got this other group, this other new group that doesn't seem to understand how the system works that you've built. You ever get frustrated with that group? I hadn't been here very long. They don't know how things really are. And all of a sudden, you've got a letter from this guy named Paul that you've never met. Claims to be an apostle. You've heard some stories. They seem like cool stories, but you don't know Paul. And he says, he says, introduces the logic that your thousand plus years of tradition was nothing more than a stopgap for a better day. How are you feeling about that? He says that 
more sin in the world actually leads to more opportunity to show off and celebrate God's grace. How do you think religious people respond to that news? Not well, right? I think there's some conflict. And that immediately leads to question number two, if you're like me. Is he really going to leave that door open? Right? Like, doesn't, doesn't that kind of logic lead to people just running headlong into sin then? As a good religious boy, that's the question I have. How about you? I mean, hey, whoa, 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 Paul, you can't do that. Don't you dare leave that door open. Do you know what that's going to give you? If you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Right? I mean, doesn't that lead to people denying God's character, denying God's commands because, you know, it's all covered by Jesus' righteousness for us? Doesn't that make a mockery of grace, Paul? You're really going to leave that door open for them? Don't you just want to pull Paul to the side and go, hey, boy, what you doing? You can't do that like that. No. No, no. Call him back to heal. Let's go. Come on. Call him back. I'll confess. That's what I want to do. Rookie move, Paul. You can't do that. And Paul, the great gospel logician of the book of Romans, he knows the question that's on the tip of religious people's tongues even before they can get it out of their mouths. The Jewish apostle, radically saved by grace and called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, knows exactly what question they want to ask next. And in verse 1 he says this, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, may expand? Verse 2, By no means. How can we who died to sin still Live in it. All right, and so in case you didn't pick it up in the tone there, um, th- this is unthinkable to him. Just completely unthinkable. This is way bigger than a simple no, right? Like a no would have been sufficient. No, 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 that's not how it works. No, Paul goes, no, by no means. This is an explosion of abhorrence. The entire question is incredulous to him. Like, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. And then he, uh, there's no punctuation in first century Greek uh, that, There's no periods or commas or exclamation points or question marks or anything like that. And so translators have to kind of look at the clues around them. They look at the vocabulary and and, and, and suffixes at the end of words. They look at the structure of the sentence and they take their best guess of what punctuation should be when they translate it to English. And so there's no punctuation in ancient Greek, uh, in first century Greek. Uh, But like the translators of the ESV felt the need to give Paul an exclamation point here. By no means, he says. By no means. Even though the shall we sin all the more question is the question that religious people want to immediately ask, want to immediately bring up and guard themselves against, Paul thinks that the question itself is completely ridiculous. Completely ridiculous. And he backs up that opinion by asking a common sense question. What is it? He says, how can we who died to sin still what? Still live in it. So what's he talking about? He's talking about that federal headship thing we talked about last week. Follower of Jesus, you are on a different team now. You're on a different team. The reality has forever changed. You're now playing for a different 
side. By grace through faith, you move from one team to the other, from team Adam to team Jesus. And you made that swap by dying. Speak for yourself, Woodard. I'm on keto. I do exercise. I, I ran a mile this morning. I watch what I eat. I didn't have coffee like you did. What do you mean by dying? Paul's not talking about physical death here, is he? Look at verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His what? Hey, ladies and gentlemen, this is why we as Baptists dunk you all the way in the water. For real. That's why we dunk you all the way in the water. The Greek word in verse 3, it means immerse. But as important as that word is, what's more important are all the words around that single word. So like we've got a baptistry back there. Whenever I'm the one that's in it, you are going to hear me say the words out loud. Baptism is an external picture of an internal reality. Every single time I'm in that tank, you're going to hear me say those words. Baptism is an external picture of an internal reality. Uh, we say it every single time we do baptisms here, and it's because we want to reflect what Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 6. That's what's going on here. The Christian doesn't simply have their sin taken away and paid for on the cross. That's, that's, that's incredibly important. The gospel can't be less than that, but there are also layers on top of that. Alright? It's more than that. The reality of the atonement is massively true, but at the same time, there's, there's layers on top of this that we get to talk about and celebrate and revel in. The Christian is also, at the very same time, in a mystical, really hard to explain way, united to Christ in His death. We're united to Christ in His death. There's a spiritual union that happens between Christ and His people. Now, now whenever you know, preachers or anybody else starts throwing around the word mystical, you've got, you got to perk your ears up because you're not sure where they're going. Like, you can get yourself in the weeds really fast. But, so what do I mean by that? The Bible teaches pretty clearly that there is a spiritual reality of things. Beyond what you can touch, beyond what you can taste and see and hear and smell and all the other senses that you like to celebrate, the Bible teaches that there is a spiritual reality to things and that for Christians, we Christ is in us and somehow at the very same time we are in Him. And that's really hard to wrap our heads around, isn't it? Because we're finite creatures living in a finite space. It's bigger than us and beyond us. But the Bible is clear. Paul is resolute here. The Christian is spiritually united to Christ and in his life and in his death. Go ahead and fess up. It's hard for me to wrap my head all the way around. Because of the union with Jesus, the Bible teaches that when Jesus died for our sin, we actually died with him for those who belong to Him. And so when we dunk someone in the water back there, it's a picture of something just just absolutely massive that has already taken place on a spiritual level. We're killing you. But we don't wait for the bubbles to stop and then bring you back up. What do we do? What do we do? 
that we bring you back up, right? Try that one time. It won't go well. Look at verse 4. We were baptized, therefore, with him by, uh, we were, sorry, we were buried with him, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, comma, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life, in order that, so that, for the purpose of, I'll read verse 4 again, we were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a what? In a resurrection like His. So Paul says that the overarching purpose of being united to Christ in His death was so that we would at the very same time be simultaneously united with Him in His life. His resurrection life. In verse 4 he calls it the newness of life. The word newness, it's the Greek word kynotes, or probably butchering the the pronunciation of that, kynotes. It's not talking about time. That's the, that's the Greek word neo. We use that as a prefix for all kinds of stuff. Neo this, neo that. Uh, that's, that's new as in time, the next edition, all that kind of stuff. Kind of it's about quality and character. It's about a reinvention. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. We, we have reinvented resurrection bodies. Cool. But Paul's not talking about our future resurrection here. That's important. It will happen. There's other places in the Bible that we get to look at that and point at that and celebrate that. But Paul's not talking about future resurrection here. He's talking about your current one. Current newness of life. He's saying that we, because we are united to Jesus, there is a new reality of who you fundamentally are. A new reality. There's been a reinvention of quality and character. And this truth is a common theme, not just in Paul's other writings, but all throughout the rest of the Bible. It's all over the place, right? Um, the idea of, it's just all over the place. I got some notes down here. In Ezekiel 36, right? We're told that we will receive a new heart, a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Before that, in chapter 18, we're told that we'll be given a new spirit. In Psalm 40, we're given a new song. In Revelation 2, we're given a new name. In 2 Corinthians 5, we're called a new creation, is, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come, right? In Galatians 6, we're a new creature. And in Ephesians 4, we're a new self. Are you starting to get the picture? There are two common denominators in every one of these pictures. One, God is the one who gives. And two, when God gives... We are forever changed by it. You cannot stay the same because there is a new reality in place. We are raised with Him in a resurrection like His to newness of life, He says. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been what? Set free from sin. Paul says that our old self was crucified. Literally, it could be translated as the old man was executed. Your old man was executed. He was put to death along with Jesus. 
Who we were in Adam by default was put to death so that the body of sin, the rule and reign of sin in your heart and life would be forever vanquished, forever defeated. He also says that we are freed from our enslavement to it. We spoke a couple weeks ago about the bondage of our will, right? That that we have a moral inability to choose what is pleasing to God. The Bible teaches that because of sin buried all the way down at the very core of who we are, that left to our own devices, we will forever pursue sin because that's what we actually love most. We're bound to it. We value it above God and other things. We're enslaved to it. We run to it blindly believing that this time, oh, this time it'll be different. This time it'll lead to my satisfaction. Even though it has only ever led to my ruin. But in verse 7, Paul says, for the one who has died has been set free from sin. Because we are new creations in Christ, because we have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. Because we are dead to sin and alive to God, we are set free, he says. Our bondage to our sin, our sinful selves is broken by the, uh, for those who now belong to Team Jesus. And those who now belong to Team Jesus can choose what is pleasing to God. We can now choose the pathway that is righteous. Does this mean that we don't struggle with sin anymore? <laughs> no. Our frames are still weak. Frames are still weak. Our, our hearts remember the ease and the familiarity of our old ways. Our former taskmaster does not take defeat lying down. But through the sacrificial death of Jesus on our behalf and through His perfect righteousness accounted to us, we are given new hearts that begin growing in righteousness too. Growing in fondness to the God who loved us before we were capable of loving Him in return. The theological term for this, this new life in Christ is called sanctification, right? The, the slow, lifelong process of those who are justified growing to look more and more and more like the one who saved them. It's slow, it's painful, sometimes there's weird backward steps, but the justified have been set free to be sanctified. With the assurance from our promise-keeping God that we will one day also be glorified. We'll get there. He will get us Look at verse 8. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the, uh, for the death He died, He died to what? To sin. Once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to who? To God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Alright, so Paul says that Jesus doesn't just keep going back over and over and over and over again to keep dying for sin. He did it once. It's done. It's over. 
Sin and death has been forever defeated. And so we, we, those who belong to Jesus, those who have moved from team Adam to team Jesus, we should live as that one time, that one time that Jesus died, you know what, like actually counted. That's his point. If he, if he's done, if he's finished it, if he's accomplished what needed to be accomplished, why, why do we keep going back to it? We should live is that that one time actually counted, follower of Jesus, to, to return again to your sin over and over and over again is to live as if the death of Jesus didn't actually accomplish what He claims to have accomplished. It's to live as if you're still a slave to it. It's a turning your back on your new master and returning longingly to your old one. Paul says here, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. But that's not all he says. Look at verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. And your members, your, your body, the, the, the thing that makes you, all right, and your members to God as instruments for what? Righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under what? Grace. So if you have been set free from the bondage of sin, don't turn right around and let your old master just have free reign over you anymore. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't give it easy access anymore. To walk willingly into sin is to offer yourself up on a silver platter to that which is designed and, intention, and intentional about harming you. It's to offer yourself up to the one who wants nothing more than to hurt you probably thinking to yourself, though. But I still walk in sin a lot. Yeah, I know. Me too, man. Me too. I, I, Paul's later going to say the same thing. Me too. We keep, we keep running back to our sin because we're like a junkie, man. You want to hear a hard truth this morning? We run back to our sin because we still love it. We still love it. Plain and simple. We, we, we love it. We long for it. We're like codependents in a twisted relationship. Running back into the arms of the one who wants nothing more than to hurt us. Feel like we need it somehow. This time it'll be different. This time it'll change. This time they'll treat me well. We're a junkie for it, and we want nothing more than maybe to be hurt again. I don't know. But whatever the case, we, we love it more than the one who actually set us free. How crazy is that? Like, if you were in a conversation with anybody saying those things, wouldn't you immediately, desperately want to get them some help? Intervene in some way? What are you doing? And so Paul says, don't, don't turn around and just offer yourself up to your old master anymore. 
Instead, here, here's what you do. Instead, offer yourself up as to, to God as an instrument of righteousness. Go chasing after the other, other direction and be used by Him that way. Present your members, present your body, present yourself to your new master as an instrument of righteousness. Just like we need a better representative, we need a better master, don't we? A good king who actually laid down his life for his beloved rather than harming her, right? We need a Jesus, a Savior who breaks every chain. So what do we do with all this stuff? Like, How, how do we respond to God's Word this morning? Well, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, I, your response is to, to lean into God this morning. I think you do that by repenting of sin and, and pressing as deeply as you can into to who God reveals Himself to be in Romans chapter 6. I think that's what you do. You want to ask the tough questions this morning though? Do you live in such a way that puts your newness of life on display? Is it obvious? Or is it convoluted somehow? The water's murky. Do people know that that you're on a different team? Is that what they see coming out of you? Do you see your sin as an old taskmaster looking to harm you just one more time? I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. We'll have some leaders up front here to to talk and pray with you if that would serve you this morning. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I'm glad you chose to hang out with us today. I don't think God has you here as an accident, though. I think He would have you respond to Him this morning. I I think you can respond to God's Word too, and you do that by meeting Jesus. By meeting Jesus. A lot of what we talked about this morning is step two for the walk of faith. Right? Step two. Step one, though, is the uniting with Him in His death part. That's got to occur before you can unite, be united with Him in His life. Like, as, as Christians, we, we don't preach that you clean yourself up. No, you can't. You've got to die to yourself. You have to die to yourself. The, the cross was... His eternal plan, Jesus' eternal plan from from before the foundation of the world to love you, to care for you, to purchase you for Himself. And now the Bible calls all those who would respond to Him to confess and trust Him in faith. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. I'll be down front if you want somebody to walk you through what that step looks like. But maybe today is the day that you'll finally respond to Him and the grace that He offers this morning. But let's all respond to God's Word this morning. However He's calling you to. Father, You're good to us. Thank You for the Scriptures. God, sometimes they're weighty and hard. I'm really excited about this resurrection life part. But my frame is weak. The moments I get more honest are the moments that I really don't want people to know what's going on in my heart and life. But You've called me Yours. You have given me a righteousness that belongs to You instead of me. You have you have and are cleaning me up. You present me as your own. And though my frame is weak, 
You've promised to bring me home. You've promised to help me take that next step and then that other next step and then that next, next step. Would you help me see that my old taskmaster wants nothing more than to hurt me? But I am feeble and frail. Thank You for Your grace. The more I think through who I really am, the more desperately I need it. So God, for those of us in here who know You already, would You, would you draw us deeper still? Would You call us to repentance? The things we chase after day after day after day. We lay them down as chains that have been forever broken. Because they are. We're just dumb enough to keep picking them up. For those of you us in here who don't know you yet, would you open eyes to see this morning? Would you call people unto yourself? Would you break some more chains? In Jesus' name, amen.